Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim? What's up, Brian? Um, welcome to everybody. Uh, this is episode two or, or sort of part two of our initial episode of Embargoed. Um, if you haven't checked out our first episode, please uh, do so. That is available on iTunes, YouTube, and anywhere else you get uh, your podcast content. Um, we today are going to um, pivot to talking. In the first episode, we talked about sort of major sanctions developments of the last and export controls developments of the last couple months. Um, now we're going to talk specifically about enforcement actions, uh, something near and dear to our hearts. Um, and uh, we're going to sort of start with a few things from late last year and, and come come into uh, 2020 to talk about a few major developments. Um, so we're going to, the format here is uh, we're going to run down sort of a few major um, or, cases in a little more detail and then we're going to wrap things up with a lightning round and a few final thoughts so before we get started any anything you want to you want to add tim nope big time in enforcement though we, you know it was very nice of the enforcers to help us yeah. out by giving us some material this week exactly right all right so with that without any further ado let's jump right into uh running down item number one so in late uh December, literally the last day of December 2019, um, there was a decision that was that came down in the ExxonMobil litigation against OFAC. And so this, I think, is a logical place as any to start because this New has, Year's Eve revolution. Yeah, it's something to read over um, champagne cocktails on New, New Year's Eve. So just to give a little bit of background on, on the case uh, before we jump into what, what this may all mean. So some number of years ago, back 2014, um, Exxon uh, signed a number of contracts with the Russian company Rosneft. Rosneft, not on, um, uh, not in SDN, but its CEO Igor Sechin is in SDN and was in SDN at the time, and he was the signatory on those contracts. Fast forward a few months, Exxon uh, gets a subpoena and eventually goes back and forth with OFAC, and OFAC takes the position that uh, having Mr. Sechin, uh, while he was in SDN, in his individual capacity, sign those contracts was a sanctions violation because uh, it meant that Exxon was um, receiving services from an SDN. And so Exxon disagreed. Uh, they disputed this all the way through the agency. Uh, a penalty notice was uh, released, and then Exxon uh, brought the case to federal court in Texas. And the decision that came down in late December for people who follow this stuff closely like we do was uh, notable because Exxon actually won. They took on OFAC and they won. And that doesn't happen very often. And so um, I think we this is worthy of a lot of we could probably spend an hour just talking about this. But um, there's a lot of different aspects of this that I think we want to cover. Essentially, just to summarize for people who haven't read the opinion or who haven't followed the coverage on this, this more or less boiled down to whether the question of whether or not Exxon had fair notice of how OFAC would interpret the receipt of services, the concept or the term receipt of services, and whether or not they had fair notice to, to understand at the time that these contracts were signed that uh, OFAC would view that as being dealing in the property or property interests of an SDN. Uh, which would be a violation uh, for a U.S. person at the time. And the court 
after looking at this in a very lengthy opinion, uh, basically came down and said, no, they did not have fair notice. And that's a violation of due process. And I'm going to throw out the penalty that was imposed, the financial penalty. So there's a lot of other things that I think we'll touch upon along the way here. There's a couple key points that uh, for anybody who practices in front of OFAC and who interprets OFAC guidance and who looks at um, and tries to decipher the Rosetta Stones of uh, OFAC FAQs, on a daily basis like we do, or even less frequently. Um, there's a lot here, but let me just start there. Let me start and throw it to you. What are your sort of initial thoughts when you saw this come down, when you saw the uh, decision that rested on this idea that there was no fair notice uh, for OFAC's interpretation? Um, sort of what are your initial thoughts on that? So I, I think this decision is a big deal if it holds. And, and the reason that I do is that the, the question that was in front of Exxon, the answer wasn't clear. But it was as clear as many of the questions that we have to answer with respect to what can you and can't you do with sanctioned parties. And so here you had Exxon was dealing with a company that under the Russian sanctions it was allowed to deal with. There's no question that it was allowed to sign this contract with this company. But could they deal with the could the could the the countersigner be a sanctioned party from the other company, even though he wasn't a party to the contract. He just was acting for the company to sign, and he was the SDN. Maybe yes, maybe no. Now, what would you do if you were going to look for guidance on this? Well, there was a frequently asked question that OFAC had done in the Burma sanctions program. So it wasn't Russia, but it was Burma, and it said if there's a company that is sanctioned or not sanctioned, but the individual signing the contract is sanctioned, you can't do it. So it was directly on point, but it was a different program. And, and what, importantly, which comes up very um, frequently in the opinion, OFAC loves to caveat their guidance, their FAQs, by saying, "This, our programs, we interpret these rules differently in different programs. They like to maintain maximum flexibility. And maximum, what they call strategic ambiguity. Ambiguity, Exactly. And it wasn't all that strategic here because that, that you know, desire to make sure that even guidance in a different program that's exactly the same set of facts doesn't apply in a, another program really came back to bite OFAC. And, and I, I think rightly so in some sense because you want to maintain strategic ambiguity, you know, due process requires fair notice. And so you can come back later and say that they had fair notice when your whole point was to keep things ambiguous so, so nobody would know what they were supposed to we, do. We should add on that exact point. So first of all, the Burma, this Burma FAQ is, is something they pointed to in the, co in the context of the lawsuit as, as why Exxon should have had fair notice. The court disagreed with that ultimately, as, in part because OFAC, of the language OFAC has in there that caveats that says that we... Um, essentially reserve the right to in interpret these rules differently across different sanctions programs. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is there was a new or two new FAQs that came out right after the Exxon case came to light in front of OFAC. And, and it essentially readdressed this issue in a more squarely, although not naming obviously the, these parties, to what seems to any reasonable person to mean they understood that there was a lack of clarity. So right. they issued an FAQ after. And the court Exxon, said that. I mean, the, the court held it against them that they came the out court. with this guidance after they right. opposed the penalty. They called OFAC out for that. That's exactly right. And so that, I think, is another interesting um, sort of an interesting piece of this, which is, you know, OFAC, 
as as we as many who deal with OFAC and as you know we deal with OFAC and all respect to our friends at OFAC who are just trying to do the best job they can we know um, they do like to have it both ways. They do like to maintain flexibility maximally whenever they can so that they can essentially reserve their right to change their mind whenever and have preserved that strategic ambiguity to sort of paralyze people from getting anywhere near sanctioned parties right. in some instances, um, depending on your risk tolerance. Um, but when they want to come, when they want to sort of crack down on somebody, then they are very quick to say, well, no, this was clear. This, because, all completely this clear. was clear because of uh, some guidance that was issued in a program that has nothing to do with the conduct you were looking at. Uh, that was, you know, arguably, um, you know, w- literally like looking for a needle in a haystack. If so you were gonna so I guess to, do it. to me, the question now is kind of what's going to happen with some of these th- things, assuming, assuming this decision sticks. So for example, you know, OFAC, both got called out because it has all of these caveats saying, you know, if we provide guidance in one program on exactly the same question, you can't use it in determining what your obligations are in another program in exactly the same set of circumstances. Are they going to keep those disclaimers? Probably yes, but it, boy, it sure got them in trouble in, in this matter because if they hadn't had those disclaimers, I think this case would have come out differently. Right. I mean, I think the the other thing to think to keep in mind is, this was sort of a perfect storm, right? Because as we know, companies are not inclined usually to push these matters all the way through to court because right. this is years. We're talking about this is six years ago. It's five a big plus deal that they fought. It's a big deal that Exxon fought. And I think, you know, many have said, well, is this going to now set a precedent where companies will feel more emboldened to push back if they feel like they're being, um, you know, treated unfairly by OFAC or held to unreasonable standards? And, you know, I think, We'll see, but I do think it's worth noting that this was kind of a perfect storm, right? Because, um, you know, the penalty amount that was imposed here was relatively low. And so you would think it was $2 million, essentially, right around. And it was a much bigger contract. Than it that. was a much bigger contract than that. But um, the... Uh, Again, this was sort of a matter of principle, like as yep. far as as far as everything that was said about it and the court filings and everything else. And they said, this is just unfair and we're not going to abide this. So we're going to fight this. And, you know, I think it sort of does show that there is there is a path to do that if you have sort of the stomach and you you want to you know invest in the the legal fees and the time to, to battle something like this. You can do it. Um, you know, I think another interesting kind of related point here is which is something that we we also wrestle with all the time there was a discussion here in the opinion about the fact that exxon did not go get guidance before they signed these contracts and the court essentially says something and i'm paraphrasing that you know that's it's it's we're taking note of that, but it's not ultimately right. dispositive. We'll hold it against you, but you don't lose just because of exactly. that. Exactly. And and as anybody who deals with OFAC knows, trying to get guidance out of OFAC in any either in any kind of timely manner or in any kind of meaningful level of specificity is almost impossible. It's right. almost impossible. That's one and of the, the things that, that that opinion almost seems kind of written in a in a um in a hypothetical world right. where the judge doesn't know anything about practice in front of OFAC, because this right. notion that Exxon could have reasonably gotten meaningful guidance from OFAC in any time of t- like in less than three years is just not realistic. Yeah, if they had pursued formal guidance, it, that that request would probably still be sitting on somebody's desk in OFAC six years later. And if they had tried to get informal guidance over the phone or 
via an in-person meeting or something like that, who knows what they would have gotten or whether they would have been able to even get something that would have been, you know, changed their, their calculus here. So, um, so that's pretty significant that because we have these discussions all the time, whether it's sort of better to, and some people are believers that look, just put in a guidance request. We know we're never going to get an answer, but then it's sort of, we've tried and if they can't really hold it against us. If we asked and we never got an answer, we've sort of have proceeded in good faith to let them know what we're doing. They had the opportunity to object essentially, or tell us that we were, we got it wrong right? and they haven't done that. So we went forward and you know, how, how bad will it be ultimately if that's where we net out? And there are some people who believe in that in every case, some people who we, we have certainly done that in certain cases. Um, you know, there's sort of, that's a case by case question, but all more often it's exactly this scenario, which is you, you do your level best, whether it's internally or with your outside lawyers to sort of look at the rules and interpret those rules and say, look, based on what we know and based on the guidance, this seems okay. So we're going to do it and we're going to, we will, you know, have a memo to the file or whatever we'll have, we'll sort of memorialize the guidance we got, but we're going to go ahead and do it because the pace of business is not such that you can sit around for four years and wait for an answer that may never come. Well, and they had a number of other reasons to think Exxon had a number of other reasons to think that the answer was yes. Right. I mean, not only was, the, the contract with uh, Rosneft not sanctioned. I mean, there's no question about that. Right. But but the, the Treasury Department officials had made a number of informal and even formal statements that the sanctions against the CEO were indivi- in his individual capacity, that right. they weren't trying to stop business with Russian companies. They right. were just trying to go after the particular individuals. And so, and that shows up in the opinion. Exxon yeah. relied on that. And yes. so I think... Part of the reason they may not have sought guidance is because they thought that the Treasury's statements, their public statements, were signaling signaling what the right answer was to it. And they didn't really want to spend two years getting some, you know, answer from somebody else when Treasury had sent so many signals in the opposite direction. Okay, so in any event, I think there's, you know, we again, like I said, we could talk about this for an hour. I think we'll we'll kind of wrap up there. But just sort of a final thought, I think just to to keep to keep your eye on going forward. Obviously, we'll see if this decision holds. This is also just one d- federal district court in Texas. This is not, um, and we'll also see um, whether or not the OFAC changes its practice or approach at all, or if it essentially just chooses to ignore this and say, okay, well, we got beat in that one case, but we're going to continue to maintain strategic ambiguity. We're going to continue to sort of do and structure these things the way that we always have. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see if anything actually changes. And, and the flip side of that, of course, being whether companies are going to actually change their attitude, whether we could see more court challenges, whether we could see, um, you know, just different behaviors in light of this, which is, again, the very rare thing that does a, a real deep dive into a, an OFAC penalty and picks it apart and then ultimately overturns it. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll make a, have a big effect on OFAC because it, at the end of the day, the answer to a lot of these questions is not very clear, and so they could go either way. And so often, if you didn't have fair notice, if Exxon didn't have fair notice here, 
then I think a lot of the clients that we see and a lot of the people who are in front of an OFAC don't have clear notice as to what the right answer to the question is unless there is OFAC guidance directly on point. And, and I think another interesting point is that in the event that somebody is seeking guidance in front of OFAC or is arguing why perhaps a penalty is inappropriate or it's, some conduct does not amount to a violation, now will OFAC be more sensitive to an argument that says, look, we didn't have fair notice of this. Here was, here was the reasonable interpretation that we applied based on this, this, this. And if you say that it's the opposite of this, then no fair notice. And you're signaling, you could signal to OFAC a bit that you might be willing to sort of go to the mattresses on something like this. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes anything at all as well. Yeah, and not, this is all not to pick on the people at OFAC. I mean, they have a hard job. They're they're trying they're their under, best to do they're it. Understaffed. They're understaffed. Yeah. I mean, we understand. We get it. We get we, all that. We get it. Yeah. And this and and you know what? I mean, it's really hard to make a one size fits all sanctions policy that everybody can understand from the get go. So totally it's not, true. Not picking on OFAC, but this is a big deal. Yes. All right. So with that, we'll wrap up Exxon and we'll move on to item number two. All right. So let's talk about Airbus. So, um, you know, this was some of the the new material that en enforcers gave us within the last week and specifically DOJ. Um, Airbus, as I think most folks know, is a European company that makes airplanes. It makes commercial airplanes and it makes military airplanes. Now, the commercial airplanes um, was a big part of the settlement, was a big part of the headlines. Uh, because uh, the, according to the Justice Department documents, Airbus was um, paying bribes in China to get commercial airplane contracts. We're not going to talk about that. That's a FCPA issue, an issue that you know lots of people would be more qualified than us to talk about. So we're going to set that issue to one side. What we're going to talk about is kind of the second part of the decision or the second part of the deferred prosecution agreement because X, or, uh, Airbus entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice, um, criminal charges on the FCPA, but also criminal charges under the ITAR, the International Trafficking um, in Arms Regulations that are administered by the State Department, uh, the Directorate of Defense Controls, what we'll call DDTC, um, and the State Department uh, administers the ITAR. Those apply to sales of military goods. And as I said, Airbus makes military airplanes, but they're a European company. Why does the ITAR apply to Airbus? Kind of that's the first question. Well, the ITAR applies really broadly. And so the, the U.S. enforcers take the position that if there is any part of any military plane or even any military part of a plane, so, you know, it might be a normal airplane, but a commercial airplane, but you add something to it that makes it go really fast or makes it be able to maneuver like a military plane. If that part is a U.S. part, then the U.S. enforcers take the position that the ITAR, U.S. law, applies to uh, transfers, to exports, to sales of that plane. And so Airbus, Airbus airplanes were subject to the ITAR. So it was, even though it was a European airplane, military, military airplane manufacturer, it was subject to the ITAR. Now, why does that matter? Well, the ITAR, when you when you sell an airplane that's subject to the ITAR, you've got to get permission from the State Department in order to do it. And so you've got to get a, a license. And so Air Airbus was selling airplanes in Ghana, in uh, Indonesia, in uh, Austria, and other places that they needed State Department approval to sell the planes. Okay, well, they got the State Department approval. So what's the big deal there? Well, to get State Department approval, you've got to tell the State Department if you paid any commissions, if you paid any commissions, if you paid any fees, if you paid 
any sort of any sort of political contribution in connection with the project. And Airbus was apparently um, hiring hiring uh, hiring consultants who were working with the governments in those countries to help them get those contracts. When it went to the State Department to apply for licenses, it didn't disclose that, and so they didn't comply with what's called Part 130 of the ITAR. Okay, so you know. So what, Tim? So Tell me what? Why, why does that matter? Well, the reason that, so one, it matters because the ITAR does require it, and if you don't do it, then you can get in trouble. But normally, you know, Part 130 is a relatively obscure part of the ITAR. Nobody knows that much about it, and so normally it would just be a civil problem. But BAE, another defense manufacturer overseas in the UK that uh, was subject to the ITAR, got in trouble in 2011 for exactly the same thing. So they had had basically gotten these defense contracts overseas. They had paid consultants to help them get them. These consultants were sometimes like the the brother of an elected official, and they'd pay them you know tens of millions of euros to help them get the contract. They got the contract, and then they when they got the license from the State Department, they didn't say, we paid commissions to the brother of the guy who made the decision here. <clears throat> so when BAE got in trouble in 2011, it was big news. And Airbus apparently uh, wrote memos and had meetings to talk about what they were going to do about Part 130 of the ITAR. And ultimately, it was decided that they weren't going to do anything about Part 130 of the ITAR. And they decided not to, to disclose to the State Department officials who all these consultants were. And so not only did they violate Part 130, and again, this is according to the, to the plea documents, you know, the, so we're going to assume those are the real facts. Not only did they violate it, they did so in a way that was willful. And so essentially what you have now is you have Airbus, a foreign company, um, pleading guilty to violating Part 130 of the ITAR. They also did some things with, um, with brokers uh, who would sell, sell their goods. That they also, were unregistered. They, you're supposed to register them yeah. with the State Department. They didn't register. I think if that had been the only violation, it wouldn't have been a criminal case. But In typical fashion, what they've done in this, in this document, where, which is you know the Deferred Prosecution Agreement has a statement of facts and the, the actual charging document, the information sort of recites the key facts as well. In typical fashion, they go through sort of a litany of facts that are not, that are maybe a little superfluous, let's say, and they go through this 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 idea of the unregistered brokers and sending uh, goods to countries that they shouldn't have been sending them to that were embargoed or that were subject to um, 126.1 under the ITAR. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to exactly what Tim just said. The charge is actually for a violation of Part 130 which is not reporting the payments and not keeping accurate records of those payments. Right. They pay they basically were paying, you know, paying making payments to people who were helping them to get contracts in ways that at the very least looked very shady and looked corrupt and um, instead of reporting those as they were required to do, they just didn't record, report them and then really didn't keep records of them. Right. And I think this is so this is interesting for at least to us, this is interesting for a couple of different reasons. So as Tim said, this is not an area where we see a lot of action under the ITAR, right? At least not on the criminal side. Right. We certainly don't. And so this is a bit of a unicorn of a case. The BAE case that he mentioned was a few years ago. The, you know, those are, those are two of the most notable, if not the two most notable in this area. Um, and the fact that this case sort of reflected upon that 
earlier case and there was no and this is right it's turn it into a criminal right, case in terms of the proof and the evidence of the of the knowledge and the willfulness and all the rest of it that was as it seems essential from the way that it was written up in the in the in the documents that were filed by doj um so that's that's one thing um and the other thing is this is kind of an interesting intersection of the and we should say by the way this is a mat this was a massive resolution with with doj however the lion's share of the penalties and the um are being paid to uh the uk and the french authorities airbus is, is a french company and so those are billions of dollars in fines that are being right. paid to those authorities i think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion on the on the u.s bribery and then um it's less than 100 million on the itar violations between forfeiture and some other things and so um, you know, this is actually the smallest piece um, of the of those three jurisdictions working together. But it's this is a massive um, sort of undertaking. And like Tim said, this is the piece that's, pro that's gotten certainly the least attention to date because the the flashy part is 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 sort of elsewhere. Um, so I think I, it'll get a lot of attention in Europe, though. Because, yeah, I think know, that's right. I think that again, like the BAE. Yeah. You know, once you once you have this, every time you have an MCPA right. investigation, yeah. If you make military products, right. You've got to be worried about the high tar. Tim is getting on a plane on Sunday to go to Europe to talk about this next week. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you happen to if you happen to be with Tim next week, then please ask about this. Let's talk about so, Airbus. So I have two I have two points that I want to um, that I want to cover two sort of interesting points that jumped out at me. Um, first one is on um, the first episode of the podcast, we talked about the new National Security Division um, self-disclosure, voluntary self-disclosure policy. This resolution makes very clear in the press release and in the documents that Airbus got credit for that. They came in under the auspices of that program, that voluntary disclosure program. First came, one. It seems that we know it, this is the certainly if it's not this is the first one I believe where there's a public resolution that acknowledges that that there was a, a party that came on under the program. So, what do you make of that? Because that's that's sort of a big deal. And this is and and then what do we what do we what learnings are there from that in terms of what type of case this is, and where again sort of in the big picture, especially under the new policy that just got rolled out in December on the VSD guidance. What does this mean going forward? So I, I, this is the perfect case for, a, for the voluntary disclosure policy because what you already had was you already had a criminal case. So, so it's not like... On the corruption On side. the corruption side. Yeah. So, they, so, so Airbus was in the middle of a, of a corruption investigation and they came upon export controls violations. And so they're already in front of the Department of Justice. They're not, they've never thought initially that this was a civil case and they don't want to make arguments to keep this a civil case. I think that if this, this conduct had come up in a vacuum, that they probably wouldn't have been as, as willing to, to concede willfulness here because most of the ITAR stuff that was talked about, you know, maybe there was a stronger case for that and they just didn't feel like putting it into the plea documents, but it didn't look anything close to willful to me. Now, the, this part, because of the prior history with BAE, certainly was made to look willful, but my guess is that in a different context, Airbus might have put on a more vigorous defense. But since they're already dealing with a much bigger criminal investigation almost, on the other it, side. It's almost ancillary to the corruption exactly. issues, right? So, you yeah. just walk into to another right. department of DOJ and say, hey, we've been doing, we've been 
acting diligently. We've gone back and investigated ourselves. This we found we out some other now. stuff. Yeah. You know, give us credit for this yeah. because we're gonna we're gonna fess up and we're not gonna fight willfulness yeah. in a way that you know in a different case they might have. Right. So related to that, the other the other point I want to bring up before we wrap up and move on is in the nature of the resolution. So this is a as Tim said, this is a deferred prosecution agreement, and it covers. Um, you know, again, primarily the corruption side of things, but it also covers this the export control violations that we're talking about. There is no monitor. There was no monitor that's been in, put in place, not by DOJ, right? No monitor. Um, and uh, what they have instead is this mechanism where there's an annual, it's essentially annual self-reporting by the company where they have to bring in, on an annual basis, they have to talk about, I think the first, the first go-round they have to talk about um, how they're meeting their compliance commitments, uh, what they're doing to remediate, um, beefing up internal controls and processes. And then thereafter, they have to, uh, for two more years, they have to also annually report back to DOJ and to all the other government agencies that were involved here um, on the U.S. side. So what do we make of that? Because that's sort of, that's kind of unusual. This is a bit of a, this is a, I don't have a recollection of where that type of reporting requirement with no monitor right. is just put squarely on the company and it's just we're, we're going to rely on you to come to us and tell us what's going on. And obviously, I'm, I'm sure that there could be or will be some back and forth after that to kick the tires on, on what they're hearing. But again, no monitor, self-reporting. What, what do we make of that? So, so a couple of thoughts here. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about Airbus is kind of it's part of a bigger trend in all of the white-collar area. Right. For joint prosecutions between you know the PNF in in France and you SFO. had the SFO in yeah. the UK and you had DOJ here and they all worked together on this issue because it crossed so many international borders and had so many countries that had you know roots in different places and so I think it's it's likely that that it's was difficult to agree on if there was going to be a monitor, where was the monitor going to come from and who was going to be the one that the monitor reported to. And so they did away with the monitor altogether. I, I do think that that might be part of a trend. You know, we talked a little bit uh, in, in the first podcast about the ZTE resolution and the, the monitor there has been a disaster by all accounts. And so... Um, Monitors. Right. They, the, the first one was so bad that they appointed a second, and you know I, that, that I'm just talking about what's reported. I don't have inside information on that, but the reports are that the first one was so bad that they had to appoint a second monitor, and obviously a company that's paying to, to monitor itself twice is not going to be particularly happy with that. And so I do think that it's not a shock to me that, that we're moving away from monitors in this area, but uh, it's also, even if there were going to be one, who would pick the monitor would be a tough, tough decision. Right. I think the multi-jurisdictional aspect of this and the fact that the U.S. had the smallest piece, as I said, right. might have played into that. Also, again, you know, under, again, the new, um, at least the new NSD voluntary disclosure policy is if you're going to come in, cooperate, remediate, um, and, and sort of follow through on all the steps uh, that are required, then no monitor. That, that's right. pretty clear from the new policy. So th I, I think you're right. I think it's a, a bit of a trend. Again, we're not trying to get, uh, we're not trying to really opine on the, the general trends and monitorships that are, that, you know, we've seen over the years in the FCPA. That's really outside of our area of expertise. But um, uh, although we have, we have plenty of colleagues we can rely on for that. But, um, but, but yeah, I think it, I think it is notable, this sort of annual self reporting, just because it is something a little different. So, um, so with that, 
let's wrap up uh, Airbus and, and and move on to number three. So, so the first two items we covered are kind of big, flashy um, enforcement actions, getting a lot of headlines. The the next three that we're going to run through here, um, probably a little more quickly, these are all OFAC settlements that have come either in late nineteen or early this year, and um, you know unless unless you're deep in the OFAC world, these are not things you've probably even, uh, or you work at one of these companies, these are probably <laughs> the not things you're... The, the first one is $12,000, but we're going to talk about it anyway because there's a couple of interesting things we want to hit on. Um, so to go to uh, number three, this is um, Park Strategies, which is a lobbying firm in, in New York, and they had an, an OFAC settlement um, that just came down very recently. Um, and again, to Tim's point, it was it was all the $12,000 um, is the ultimate penalty that was paid. Um, but the circumstances here are, are noteworthy. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. This is late January. Um, so essentially what happened is a lobbying firm gets hired by an SDN um, to pursue, to uh, undertake some lobbying work on their behalf. And again, we have a very limited set of facts from the um, from the penalty notice that's, that's public on, o- on OFAC's website. But um, w- what... The focus here really is whether or not, or not even whether or not, but um, the idea that somebody who is acting on behalf of an SDN is uh, covered by the general license that would be um, available under that particular sanctions program. As as people who work in this space know, basically every sanctions program that OFAC has, there's some kind of general license that allows for legal services. And the specific types of legal services that you can provide are um, set forth in that general license. And it's, and again, I'm kind of paraphrasing and summarizing, but it's usually, you know, you can, you can explain and give counsel and guidance on um, the scope of U.S. law. Um, you can, def- you know, represent somebody in a lawsuit in the U.S. There's a couple of other things that are typically articulated in each general license, but it's, you know, three or four things and they're pretty concrete. And uh, and if you are going to proceed under that general license, there are other rules that apply in terms of how you get paid and filing your engagement letter with OFAC and et cetera, et cetera. So I think the the interesting thing here is they make a they take great pains to say this wasn't a law firm, this is a lobbying firm, not a law firm, not providing legal services, right? Number one, number two, I suspect, and I've seen this reported outside of the penalty notice that they that this firm was engaged in some lobbying activities that were intended to, I guess, boost the prospects of this SDN to get off the SDN list. Right. Right. And so it is, it is adjacent to at least activity that would be covered by the legal service. You could represent some, I mean, we We, do it. We represent parties that are on the SDN list in front of OFAC in efforts to get them delisted. And that that's clearly covered by almost all the general licenses. That's exactly right. And so I think the the in, the interesting thing here is this idea that perhaps, uh, and again I'm, I'm speculating, but if you were if you were engaged in activity that is kind of adjacent to or supporting that type of activity, which is which is clearly authorized, there is a there are limits, and you right. cannot and, and it, they are hard and fast. And if you were outside of those limits, you would have to go to OFAC and get a specific license, or else it will not be authorized, and you will potentially be violating the sanctions. Yeah, I mean, I think this was kind of designed to flag for everyone what you can't do, at least, that looks somewhat like the sort of things that you can do as a lawyer representing people in front of OFAC. Right. 
And so, so I think that's really the only, the big point that we want to make. And, and again, this is, this is something that jumps out at us because we spend a lot of time staring at these general licenses and making sure that everything we're doing is compliant. And we talk to other lawyers about this all the time, but, um, you know, with respect to this, this one, um, uh, on the lobbying front, and again, w uh, on behalf of a party that is, is seemed to have been at the time pursuing potentially relief uh, from its listing, um, if you're outside the scope of that, then um, you, you would need a license. Be careful. Yeah, be careful. Not um, legal advice. But yeah, be we're careful. not giving you legal advice, but be careful. Um, yeah, that reminds me. I think I forgot to give a disclaimer at the outset. We're not, not giving we're not giving anybody advice. legal advice, so uh, you have to call us separately for that. So um, let's let's put that one aside now, and then move on to item number four, which is another recent OFAC settlement. So this one is from December. Uh, it involves Allianz Insurance, and it's another kind of small matter, but I think it's worth talking about because OFAC has done uh, has imposed penalties for things like this a lot recently. It, Allianz is an insurance company. Uh, there's a U.S. insurance company. They had a branch in Canada. In Canada, um, Canada doesn't have any sanctions against Cuba. So if you live in Canada and you're a Canadian citizen, you can go to Cuba anytime you want. You don't have to make up a reason to go or to provide one of the 12 reasons that you're allowed to go as a U.S. person, none of which can include tourism. So U.S. persons can go to Cuba as long as they're not going there to be tourists. Canadian persons in Canada, flying on Canadian airlines, can go to Cuba for any reason they want. Why does this matter? Well, Allianz Canada, which is a branch of the U.S. insurance, provided travel insurance for Canadians to go to Cuba. It actually provided just travel insurance, period, and wasn't really asking people where they went, but one of the places that they could go was Cuba, and they went to Cuba a number of times on Allianz Canada, a branch of Allianz U.S.'s travel insurance. And um, OFAC found out about that, OFAC imposed a penalty because the, under the U.S. sanctions against Cuba, they apply not only to U.S. companies, but U.S. owned or controlled companies. Now, because U Allianz Canada was a branch, it probably was technically a U.S. company anyway, but at the very least, it was a U.S. owned or controlled company, which meant that it couldn't provide travel insurance to Canadians who could lawfully travel to Cuba um, for the travel to Cuba because it was providing a service to Cuba within the meaning of the Cuba regulations. So why does this matter? Well, it, it just is another example of enforcement actions against Cuba. You know, Cuba, the, Cuba was not an enforcement priority prior to 2017. And in fact, it looked like it was heading toward potentially going away altogether as a sanctions program. Well, and in, in, in fact, it's, it's actually permissible to provide travel insurance to Cuba now. Right. even. Um, but in 2015, it wasn't permissible. Right. And, and so all of this conduct was pre um, the loosening that took place in the Obama administration. But, but Cuba enforcement actions and Cuba travel has become a big enforcement priority for the OFAC Trump administration. Right. And the, and the companion case that was announced at the exact same time, which involved Chubb and a, and a, um, a subsidiary of Chubb, um, as well, similar facts. This this was European travel and insurance of European travel. Spain, I believe, was sort of the hub there, going to Cuba, and there was no sanctions and exclusion clause in the yep. in the in the policies, and, and and there was a. It seems from the note, the penalty notice, that there were, there was perhaps a misunderstanding of what rules applied and and whether or not um, that uh, that particular those policies and and that those insureds would essentially be covered by this. Um, and I, and again, I think the, so again, in the case Tim talked about the Allianz case where there was a general policy, a global policy, but no carve out for Cuba, similar on the, on the Chubb side, 
there was no sanctions exclu- exclusion clause. That was sort of the teachable moment that right. that comes out very clearly from the penalty notice. So it's just it's just one of these, uh, you know, for for and we talk about these things all the time for uh, you know trade compliance uh, folks and and other uh, people who are trying to you know write policies and and sort of do the right thing. This is one. This this continues to be. Um, a bit of a tricky one with respect to Cuba where there has to be some special care and attention paid when you have generally applicable policies that might work around the world. But with respect to Cuba, if there's any U.S., if there's a U.S. parent, there's any U.S. connection, there needs to be probably an additional layer of um, care given and something else that might need to be done. And it, and it's just another example. It's These are travel insurance, and there's actually some other travel insurance enforcement actions from last year. But beyond that, Companies that have branches or subsidiaries or, uh, you know, overseas um, entities that are working in a, in a country that doesn't have any sanctions against Cuba and where nobody's thinking about the Cuba sanctions, when you have a U.S. connection like that, um, the Cuba sanctions apply to you and, and companies and individuals are getting in trouble a lot more now because of interaction with Cuba, usually involving travel, uh, that... They wouldn't really. It wouldn't be their first thought to think, "Oh, that's prob- probably illegal." But because of the U.S. touch, it is right. Um, okay, so with that, let's let's um, move on to our final major topic of the day, which is another one last OFAC um, enforcement action, which just came out very recently um, in January, and uh, this one is actually um, this is the Eagle Shipping. Uh, settlement and, and this relates to the Burma sanctions program. I, I can so we mentioned Burma earlier because of that FAQ in the in the Exxon case. I can guarantee you we're the only podcast in America to mention the Burma sanctions program twice. We're going to talk about sea sand though as well, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Um, so I feel good about that. Um, and the reason that we are, I am confident we're the only ones, is because the Burma sanctions program doesn't even exist anymore. In fact, it was mothballed in late 2016. And the SDN that was at issue in this case also came off the list in 2016. However, I think this this action has a few interesting notes that are worth talking about, in part because when I read this, it sort of reads it reads as a um, almost an instruction manual to how how to how to recognize red flags. And there are so there were a number of red flags that came out here. And a number of steps and decisions that were made that are the type that absolutely infuriate U.S. enforcers. And so it's no wonder that even though we're talking about um, we're talking about um, an agreement that was back in you know we're back in 2011, and we're talking about moving like Tim said, sand, literally sand, from Burma to Singapore. Um, why would anybody care about that? That's a good question. Well, if you apply to OFAC for a license and they tell you you can't do something and then you decide to do it anyway, that's a bad fact. And, and that's what we have here. So uh, I'll, I'll toss it to you to, to hit on a couple of highlights from so, Eagle Shipping. So this is, this is just like an awesome set of facts. So I kind of, <laughs> I don't know if you watch Below Deck, but there's like this like really kind of gruff, like grumpy captain. And I think he actually might have been on this boat. <laughs> because so basically what you have is you have this, Bur- the, this Burmese company that was on the SDN list. Um, and, and we're going to call it Burma because OFAC does, but 
the real not only have the Burma sanctions not existed for years, Burma hasn't <laughs> even existed for years. But but so so you have you have this company. They want to they want to ship this sea sand. They come with these documents that show that the company's name, the company is on the SDN list, and so the, they they get sent back. And then they come with some new documents that show some other company at exactly the same address, but it's not called the SDN company. Red flag. Right, red, red flag. flag. Okay, so, so but, the, but the, the decision makers at the shipping company say, do it. And you've got this captain who's like, hell no. He's, he's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Look, it's the same company. And so they, they ultimately fight about it, and then the company decides to go ask OFAC per, for permission but because there's so much pressure put on by the Burmese government to send this sea sand, the ship sails while they're waiting for OFAC's permission. And then OFAC says, no, you can't do it, but the sand's already gone. They go back and ask for permission again to, file, to send more sand. OFAC says, no, again, you've got this captain fighting with the company about whether they're going to take the sea sand the whole way. And ultimately, you know, when OFAC finds out about it, it's not pleased because, like you said, when OFAC says no... You're supposed to listen to them, and when you don't, um, you can get into a lot of trouble, which is what they did here. But I just love the fact that um, you got this captain that is like, I'm not taking this stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, too bad. He, he certainly wasn't the one that got in trouble, but, right. but it was kind of a weird standoff where you, the captain is saying no because he's reading the documents. Yeah, and so, again, I think the, I think the, the main takeaway here, to, the idea that there would be a penalty imposed on conduct that's almost a decade old under a program that doesn't even exist anymore, you have to have a pretty unique set of circumstances to make that happen. I think that's what exactly what you have here, and that's, as Tim said, th these are some really interesting facts that you don't see very often in some of these and uh in some of these cases and so I, it's worth it's worth a quick read and for anybody in the compliance world who wants to use this as a, a training example of of how you spot these things and some what to do what not to do i think it's it's a it's a pretty good one we don't see we don't see too many that rise to this level um, okay, and with that, let's um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. That's kind of the main portion, our rundown of the main issues here. Um, we're we're heading down the home stretch. We're going to move to um, we're going to move to the lightning round. We're going to hit three issues in the lightning round, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up. So, why don't Tim? Why don't you go ahead and get us started on lightning round? We're going to try right. to be more lightning than we were in episode one, which we'll see. Admittedly, we were we'll not see. that lightning. And we're going to be quick. We're going to try. We're going to try really hard uh, to do this actually fast. Let's let's go. All right, Virgil Griffith. So, otherwise known in the media as the crypto bro. <laughs> so, so Virgil um, is apparently some sort of uh, expert in cryptocurrency, decides that he wants to go to some sort of boondoggle conference in North Korea to talk about cryptocurrency, ask the state department because right now there is there are restrictions on even the ability to travel to North Korea, which is somewhat unusual for sanctions. It's really mostly Cuba is, is where the travel restrictions are, but there are travel restrictions on North Korea. He asks the State Department for permission. The State Department says no. Virgil goes to North Korea. This is the allegation. He's been charged, so you know who knows if they're, they're true, but the allegations and what's been reported in the media is that he goes to, to North Korea, attends the conference, um, there's more allegations that while he's there, he starts to uh, try and send uh, money money transfers yeah. from North Korea, um, which is also a big problem under U.S. sanctions if that's what he was doing. Um, and then 
returns to the United States, and guess what? Uh, he's arrested when he comes back to the United States because he asked the State Department to go, and they said no, and he went anyway. Yeah, I think the big – and while uh, – I should add that in the in the charging documents, it's alleged that while he was in North Korea, he's essentially teaching the North Korean audience how to use blockchain technology to evade sanctions. Right. So, again, that's about as big a – you know, middle finger to the U.S. government as you can possibly give at this point. And so my my quick takeaways from this, um, and and I, we should add, he's a U.S. citizen who, who was living abroad, but um, is a U.S. citizen, so that's, that's why this all matters ultimately. Um, so a couple things. Number one, um, again, we were just talking about if you ask and they say no and you go anyway, then you do so at your own peril. That's, that's bad. That's yeah. our legal analysis. Yeah. Not legal advice, Not legal, advice. legal analysis. Yeah, that's, that's nuanced legal analysis right there. If you ask the government, they tell you no, you do it anyway, then you do so at your own peril. The second thing and the last thing I'll add, um, crypto. We have not seen – crypto is if – it's, if it's not full-fledged at this point, it's at least an emerging sanctions evasion tool. And we know that, and OFAC has started to pay more attention to this. They've issued guidance on uh, Venezuela tried to if, has issued or tried to issue a cryptocurrency, um, and they said, yeah, that's off limits for U.S. persons. This is something that we've heard rumblings about in other parts of the world. Obviously, the North Koreans are interested in this. Something to keep an eye on. I think there's going to be a lot more blockchain and crypto-related evasion cases over the next few years. I just That's me looking at crystal ball. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, uh, you know, in his defense, you know, we will say that his lawyers are quoted in the media saying they're not talking, but they'll tell it all to the jury at trial, and the, the jury will see that he is innocent of all charges. So that could happen. We're not ruling that out, but yeah. at least from the media reports, this looks bad. Yeah, very, very key to to and and the press release and the charging documents. So anyway, all right, that's number one. Let's go to number two quickly. Um, so just recently, actually, just on Wednesday, it was reported that um, a Spanish executive of a hotel chain, Melia Hotels International, um, had received notice from the United States State Department that he was um, not going to be able to get a visa or was going to be banned from traveling to the U.S. And the reason for the ban was because his company has been linked um, to uh, the expropriation of property in Cuba and trafficking in property confiscated by the Cuban government. So this is this is what just went into effect in Cuba and under the Cuba sanctions. This is, this provision had been waived for um, decades and just went back into effect last year. And this is one of the first instances where we've seen somebody kind of publicly acknowledging that this has happened. And there was a claim in the article that the company or that they were aware that 50 other individuals or 50 other companies have been also so notified. So... It's going to be fascinating to see what, who else has been touched by this and how the, how the reaction is going to be, whether this gets challenged. We, we expect that there could very well be court challenges to these, these types of restrictions. And, and so that's what are your quick thoughts on that? Yeah, quick thoughts. So this is Helms-Burton, a law passed kind of in, in, in the run-up yeah. to the 1996 presidential election where Helms and Burton in Congress passed the law that, that President Clinton signed that was really kind of directed to tighten the sanctions against Cuba. It's what made it, it – it was what Obama couldn't undo when he was kind of loosening the, the sanctions against Cuba. Um, 
it was mostly dormant. Now, this travel provision was invoked once um, back in the 90s against a Canadian uh, executive. I, I actually had to do some research for a case that I was working on. Hadn't been, hadn't been enforced or invoked in the last 15 years after that. So this is the first time in quite a while that they have imposed it. But basically, anybody around the world, and certainly in, in Western Europe or in Canada, doing business in Cuba is probably subject to these sorts of travel bans. And so essentially they ban the U.S. executive or ban the foreign executives from coming to the U.S. It's kind of a big deal. Um, and, and the fact that it is being revived is kind of a, a, one of many ominous signs coming out of the Helms-Burton Act. Not, not to mention whatever the knock-on effects of this are going to be now that this has been publicly acknowledged and with respect to banks and other repercussions, even if, the, even if that's not strictly part of this, we, as we know, anytime somebody is subject to any type of U.S. restriction or sanction like this, there's usually a, a big sort of right. bubble around that where there's uh, some compliance concerns that are going to have to be navigated. That's the exactly banks right. basically say, this, is, this person is too risky, and they stop yeah. letting them use exactly. their checking account. Okay, so on that, let's move on to the last topic, which is coming back to a favorite from uh, episode one, Huawei. So very quickly, so, so part of the enforcement action against Huawei was that uh, Huawei and some of its, uh, some of its uh, officers were indicted in the, I think it's the Southern District of New York, it might be the Eastern District of New York, but it's in New York City, and um, they've been indicted for sanctions evasion related to sending um, items to Iran that they got from the U.S., but also for, um, for money laundering. And the reason that that's important and wire and, bank fraud. and wire and bank fraud. So essentially they weren't telling the banks that they were getting money from what they were doing with the U.S. origin goods. That's the allegation. And so after or actually after the indictment came down, but before it became public, the CFO of Huawei, a woman named um, Meng Wanzhou, who's the daughter of the founder, who's the, the daughter CEO. of the founder and the CEO, she was changing planes in Vancouver when she was picked up by Canadian authorities on the U.S. indictment that had not been public to that point. It was a sealed indictment, but it was unsealed at the same time that she was arrested by the Canadians changing planes in Vancouver. This is in late 2018. This yeah, is a while so ago it's now. about two years ago, um, and the U.S. has been trying to extradite her. Now, the extradition proceedings are a little bit complicated because the underlying charges in Huawei relate to U.S. sanctions against Iran. Well, the, the main principle of extradition is that there's got to be duality. You basically, you can't extradite somebody to your country to face charges for something that's not a crime in their country. And so in Canada, Iran sanctions are not in play. And so violating the Iran sanctions is not really a crime in Canada. So if that was the entirety of the indictment, then there wouldn't be duality and she couldn't be extradited to the U.S. But because of the money laundering charges... And the bank fraud charges, which are crimes in other jurisdictions, um, that's really the, the the linchpin of the argument by the U.S. that there is there is duality, and so essentially she can be extradited to the U.S. because there's the, the it, what she did was not only a crime in the U.S., it would be a crime in Canada. Right, and so the trial, her trial in Canada on this legal question of whether or not um, she can be extradited is ongoing right now. Um, and it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. My quick take as a former prosecutor, having dealt with these issues, is you know, fraud is fraud. And anytime we had a charge that was fraud based in, a, in just about any jurisdiction, we felt pretty good about the fact that we could get dual criminality. And that's ultimately what this boils down to. I will say, though, 
given how politically charged this is and how there, you know, as a, I think a lot of people know, there are a couple of Canadian citizens that have been held by the Chinese, uh, largely seen as retaliation for this. And so this is very fraught. It's politically charged. Whether the Canadians will potentially yield to the Chinese demands to let her go and not have her extradited, that is a, is an open question. I mean, it seems that they are holding the line and they are going through the the process, but we will have to see. So this is this is a very big deal because if she is allowed to go back to China and doesn't come back to the U.S., it's going to really harm U.S.-Canada relations, and it's going to be um, you know it's going to be sort of another. Um, you know, chip on the scale of the U.S.-China tensions uh, as well. So yeah, it'll I be mean, fascinating to see. Extradition between the can- between Canada and the U.S. is pretty common. As yes. you, I mean, as you know, and anybody yeah. might imagine, because people can go across the border pretty easily. And so, you know, extradition is usually just a formality when you're talking Canada and the U.S. And if the U.S. isn't able to extradite people from Canada for fraud, right? Um, and the, the fraud charges are pretty clear in, in terms of the charges. Who right. knows if they're true? But that the right. indictment, there's been an indictment. It's it alleges fraud. It alleges all the elements of fraud, and it's Canada. It's not like they're trying to extradite her from you know a country that might not have that long extradition right. history. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so with that, we're going to wrap up. We are definitely going to have to get better at going fast because we're that was already, fast. That was not that fast. We're we're long winded no matter no matter what, unfortunately. But um, without any final thoughts here as we wrap up episode two? No, I hope the enforcers, you know, go a little bit easy so we don't have so much to talk <laughs> about next time. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so with that, we're going to say goodbye to everybody. Please stay tuned for episode three, uh, which will be coming your way in a few weeks. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, and until next time, everybody, please stay sanctions-free. See ya. Take care. Take care.